not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, recovery author, blogger, and podcast host. I've been chronicling my adventures in life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety a decade ago in my blog Unpickled and in the books that I write to so far and more on the way at jeanmccarthy.ca. I tell my stories there and I hold space for your stories here. And today, ah, super exciting. I'm holding space for none other than Ruby Warrington, the author of Sober Curious. And she has a new book out, a workbook that is fantastic. It's called The Sober Curious Reset. Ruby Warrington, hello and welcome. Hello, Jen. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. I'm glad you're here. And I'm sure our listeners are exciting because I think if I took a poll, I would have to guess that your book is on the bookshelf of probably 90% of <laughs> your listeners. That would be <laughs> you've cool. A, <laughs> you've had a huge impact. And it's I, I just have so many questions for you about the whole movement of the sober curious mindset. But before we get to that, I'm just going to ask you to take a few moments and tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and who you are and how you got here. Well, yeah, my name's Ruby. I'm British by birth and I've lived in America, New York for nine years. It was nine years last month. I actually got my US citizenship last year right before the election, which was great. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I'm definitely um, making this country my home. Um, and this is really where my career has moved from being um, more in the journalistic space to becoming an author and writing more about the subject matter that I really care about and the kind of books that I really want to see in the world. Um, my background is, like I said, journalism. I worked as a magazine and newspaper journalism in the UK from the late 90s, right out of college. Um, so I have 20 plus years as a writer under my belt. And yeah, it's really been the past sort of five, six years where I've expanded into being an author and it's fantastic. Like I'm so happy to have found my vocation and even more so to have found publishers and an audience for the subject matter that I find to be the most interesting. I think in another life I might have become either an anthropologist or a psychiatrist <laughs> or a psychologist <laughs> rather. Um, Cause I'm just really fascinated with humans, what makes us act the way we do, what makes us feel the way we do, how we live in the world, how we exist with each other and alongside all of the different challenges that the world presents us with. And underneath all of that, really how we can get to know ourselves properly, how we can get to know the human beings that we are underneath all of the conditioning and the expectations of the external world. And I think that's why the subject of well, alcohol use in general, substance use in general, but addiction also is so interesting to me because I think that whenever we're engaging with any kind of substance use and abuse, 
we're trying to somehow alter or hide from who we truly are and create a buffer between the person we are on the inside and the world that we're meeting on the outside. And I think that we can all live more fulfilling and fulfilled lives when we can meet the world as the human beings that we are and feel confident and supported in that. So that's kind of gets to the real crux of like what I'm interested in as a human being and as a writer, because writing is what I do. (laughs) So the curious piece then, I mean, it sounds like curiosity is a mindset for you that you're just really interested in people and the world and how things work. Yes. Ever since I was a kid, I mean, I learned to read pretty early and from the minute I could, I would read anything I could get my hands on. My mum used to call me Radio Ruby when I was a kid because I would just constantly be like telling her what I'd been learning and asking questions. And yeah, I've just always been very, very curious. And I think both my parents, I was raised to really think for myself um, and to question the world and to question convention and that was uncomfortable at times as a kid like my parents were pretty unconventional and so I often felt like the outsider but I think that outsider-ish quality is also what what helps me be an observer and a guide therefore for others potentially I sort of feel like oftentimes I'm living my life as an observer and from that perspective I'm able to point things out that people might have not noticed before Um, And I think that's definitely something that I did or tried to do with Sober Curious. It hasn't been that long since you released Sober Curious, but it's had a huge impact. And I, I sometimes feel like it was exactly the right book for the right time because the information age has changed recovery in such Mm. a wonderful way. I feel like in the past, if your only options to deal with um, alcohol dependence or alcohol use disorder was to either talk to your doctor or muster up your courage and walk into a meeting, I feel like based on my own experience, uh, I would have had to have gotten a lot worse before I would have been willing to do that. But because of the internet and the access to not only information, but other people in recovery, we're finding our way to help and to change much earlier in the trajectory. And I think that's opened up a new way of thinking about recovery and sobriety and going alcohol-free. It's kind of changed the dialogue that for a long, long time was the path is you drink until it's absolutely unmanageable, you hit rock bottom, you go to a meeting, Mm -hmm, you change mm -hmm. your life. Yeah. (laughs) Now things are just, we have this culture of wellness, this culture of seeking, and people are thinking, hey, I can cut this trajectory earlier on. I can be more proactive and more informed and I can exercise my curiosity anonymously with a search on my computer without having to disclose to other humans that I'm even thinking about this. So into, you know, that shifting pool, the the shift in recovery and also all of the new options for recovery, you write Sober Curious and really kind of blow open the dialogue and even move the needle of starting to take action towards going alcohol-free or changing your relationship with alcohol much earlier to an earlier stage of the arc. 
So were you super intentional about that when you wrote the book? Did you really feel as you were creating that, that this was really going to change things or did it surprise you the impact that it had? Well, all of, I think what you said is just extremely well articulated and makes absolute sense as to why this book, this concept, and my book is by no means the only piece of work that's kind of driving this movement. It's part of a real chorus of voices um, speaking differently about recovery, particularly as it pertains to sort of more grey area drinkers or early exiters, as I've heard us referred to as well. <laughs> um, I like that. I think um, it was entirely intuitive. (laughs) It was definitely not a calculated move on my part for this book to come out. It came out in December 2018. Um, The Sober Curious Research came out in December 2020. But I had been sober curious myself for, I would say, at least six, seven years before that. So it's about 10 years ago that I started doing the work that are in these two books, but in a very kind of insular personal private way because like you say until very very recently addiction and recovery has been so stigmatized that it felt I think beyond the reach of the majority of people who perceived their drinking to be a problem it felt like it was too extreme it certainly did for me Um, and that was very much just a perception it was not, as I've discovered, the reality of what actually happens in a lot of the recovery rooms. So I, I was just sort of following my own path. And I actually started hosting events on the subject of being sober curious back in 2016, at which point I had started talking. I just kind of had this suspicion. I can't be the only one that's thinking. I can't be the only one. <laughs> and I could see that in conversations I was having with friends, in conversations I was having with my husband, just Against the backdrop of this growing interest in wellness, I could see or just sense I had an intuition that many people were coming up against this um, cognitive dissonance between I'm doing all these things that are about my wellness and then I go and drink all weekend. And there was just this disconnect happening. I felt like I can't be the only one. And so started hosting these events, which were immediately very, very successful and popular. And I just signed with a new book agent at the time. And I kind of said, should I? Should I? book about this and she was like yeah you I think you definitely should and so that was sort of how it happened it wasn't calculated on my part it was just me following a very natural and personal instinct and impulse for my own for my own healing I mean it really helped me to be able to have some of the conversations out loud that I've been having in my own head with myself for years you know Mm -hmm. I think most people who finally do find that they can open up about what has been the obsession with alcohol, which is what it becomes, I think, for most people who decide that they need to do something about it. Um, to be able to just talk about it is such a huge relief. Um, and that used to happen in the rooms of AA only, or like you say, with a doctor or maybe a therapist. But now there are so many more options for that, which I think is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious then about how the response to that book and the success of that book, how did that impact you? Were you prepared for it? And were there any difficulties associated with that? I mean, sometimes we sort of think we know how it's going to go and we we brace ourselves if things don't go well, but were you prepared for how well things went? (laughs) 
Yeah, yes and no, I suppose. Um, what I, I was surprised at how long of a tail it's had. I mean, I'd had a book out previously, which did fairly well. And I'm used to having my name being published and my articles being shared. And so none of that was um, that much of a surprise. I wasn't uncomfortable with the kind of media attention, I suppose, because I was used to being in that space. But the fact that, I mean, the, the whole of 2019, I was in promo. I was in promo mode doing podcasts and interviews and events and all sorts. And I got actually really, really burnt out um, from that part. And I felt like I was, I felt like I couldn't kind of complain about it because of course that's what every author wants. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, it's a huge amount of essentially unpaid work that you're doing kind of promoting the book. And I know that can sound ungrateful too. Yes, I got it in advance, but it wasn't sizable by any means. Um, And I'd received that kind of two years before. So it was sort of a year of burning the candle at both ends, doing the promo work of the book. um, And then also just kind of like trying to make a living doing my regular job. But beyond my personal kind of struggles with just that burnout piece, I was obviously absolutely thrilled that so many people, that that term, so the curious, seemed to capture the public imagination in the way that it did. If anything, it just really proved to me that actually this movement has been happening behind closed doors for a long time. There just wasn't really the language to describe it before, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. And, you know, just to expound on something you said there about the, the long tail of this book, I think what most people don't realize is that Books, when they come out, they typically have six weeks or so that they are on the Mm -hmm. shelf and in front of people and that a publisher will really put a lot of, you know, gas behind them. And then when that window Mm -hmm. closes, they're gone. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, So for for, uh, authors that are publishing in the traditional stream, you will be expected to do a sprint of publicity Mm. during that time frame and before that time frame to really try to push out a maximum amount of sales. The recovery market is, is different because material that's evergreen, there is just an ever-present interest and need for recovery material. And there's always people Mm. coming into it. And so I'm seeing that with a lot of books. I mean, it's 10 years since Anne Desert Johnson wrote Drink, which had a huge impact on women Mm. in recovery. And yet that book still, I hear that talked about as much today as it, as it was then. So the good ones are like instant classics. Right. And I think that the term sober curious, the fact that the term has taken off in the way that it has and been adopted in so many places, sort of gives the impression perhaps that the book is like a bigger success than it was. Like it's sold well, but it hasn't been at the top of the bestseller list. I think the term has really taken, has really had a life of its own, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Well, and that, I find that interesting to hear you say that because that ties into something else I was thinking about as I was reading the new one, The Sober Curious Reset, which is how mummy wine culture and there's a real feminization of of alcohol use these days. It's really being sold to women. If all of that sort of cultural mindset can be manufactured and created and perpetuated, then so can the flip side of it, right? (laughs) So can a new attitude Mm -hmm. towards being alcohol free and taking charge of, of our relationship with alcohol. So 
I'm kind of curious to, uh, to know from you. Oh, dude, that's something I say all the time. I'm curious. <laughs> every, now every time I say <laughs> it to you, I'm really, I'm really self-conscious about it. Um, I would like to know, Ruby, your thoughts on if you could just wave a wand and create a, a cultural movement or a mindset of wellness, of a different way of thinking about alcohol, how that would look. I mean, if, if, if we could put the energy and the creativity and the budget towards the flip side of mommy wine culture, you know, what pieces would that need? What would that look like for you? That's a big question. I know. <laughs> it is a big question. I think first and foremost, it's about mine. It's about literally a flip from seeing alcohol as the thing or drinking as the pastime which makes us sexy and confident and cool and gives us autonomy as women to making sobriety what does that for us which is actually the truth mm-hmm. <laughs> you know um and to really kind of present opting out as the strong confident sexy cool choice you know not just the responsible good for your health um you're going to get better sleep but actually give it some sass and some cool you know i think that would be really good kind of direction for (laughs) for this to all go and i can see that there's a sober curious facebook group where people are all kind of doing the reset together or lots of them are anyway lots of people are just there to kind of like share and, and be part of it that's a lot of the attitude in the posts that I'm sure other kind of like alternative recovery groups perhaps see happening as well. But just the sense of like, wow, I didn't know how good this would feel. I didn't know how great this made me feel about myself. This makes me feel great about myself, which is kind of the opposite of the mentality that we have had until recently around what it means to get sober. There's still this lingering sense that there's a sense of like, denial there was something wrong with you that you're cutting something off in a way and so I think a flip to this being like wow this is actually the portal to a life of abundance and confidence and yeah just self-love and self-acceptance I think would be really cool (laughs) if we could have some billboards kind of like promoting that that'd be great the the notion of being powerless over alcohol which is really the first step in a in a 12 step program has worked really well for a lot of people and i feel like people who really go far into their addiction or further into their addiction get to a place where where that really resonates but if we're quitting earlier before we hit that bottom or before we really start to feel like we're really losing everything then it is an empowered choice versus a powerless choice. And I feel like that's, that is where some of the re- resistance that people feel towards some of the more traditional ways to think about and talk about recovery it comes from that disconnect of, hey, I'm not there yet. I don't want to go there in order to quit. Absolutely. Well, it's like saying, I don't want to say, it feels kind of weak somehow to admit or to say I'm powerless. But actually, I think there's a, a quick way to reframe that, which is like, I want to take back my power. Like quitting is actually taking back my power, which is the same, essentially the same thing, but just it sounds much more, um, yeah, just much more empowered, (laughs) Mm -hmm, you know? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, if you want to wait until you're powerless, just keep drinking. You'll get there. (laughs) Right. It doesn't usually get better on its own. It usually kind of takes you down. Yeah. For some of us, 
language is so important. And so sometimes even just the language of a program can either turn people off of it or draw them closer. What are your thoughts when it comes to using labels in the vernacular, in the, in a, in a 12 step community or in a lot of recovery communities, uh, we refer to ourselves, you know, uh, I'm Jean, I'm an alcoholic. And that, that word in that setting has a meaning that can be useful. But if I said to a group of friends over dinner, hi, I'm Jean, I'm an alcoholic. They don't know what that means. They might think that means I'm in active addiction, not in recovery. And so I feel like language can be positive or negative. And to some extent, it's an individual thing. But what is your perspective on labels? Are they useful? And what? how can we think about them in a way that helps us? The label alcoholic never resonated for me because it, I had such kind of, so much sort of conditioned thinking around what alcoholism was and what addiction was and what an alcoholic was. And I couldn't see my story in that narrative at all. And I've learned so much, obviously, I, I say obviously, but because largely because many people, well, several close people who became, who got sober curious with me, found, used it as a stepping stone to find their way to AA when they realized they actually needed deeper support and a more structured sort of program. And for them, the label really did resonate. And again, I, you mentioned, I think it's a very, very individual thing. I think that it can help people find a sense of identity and within that identity, find a path forward for themselves and find a kind of sense of a new identity that's separate from their drinking self. And I think that can be very useful. But I'm personally very encouraging of people following whichever path and describing their journey in whatever way resonates for them and not prescribing any particular label. Like when people say to me, so are you sober? I don't, I don't even, I don't typically even say that I'm a sober. I kind of say I'm, I'm sober and I don't, I'm not sober and I don't drink (laughs) because even the label sober has a lot of connotations and it has a a really deep kind of resonance for people who are sobering 12-step recovery. And I don't want to sort of pretend that I have that experience to draw on. So I kind of describe myself as a non-drinker. I don't even really describe myself as sober curious anymore, although lots of people do. (laughs) I'm just a non, I just, I'm just a non-drinker. That's that's the only sort of label I use for myself now. I'm going to ask you something that feels uncomfortable for me to ask. <laughs> if it's uncomfortable, if I'm just setting it up that way. <laughs> <laughs> if you if you feel uncomfortable answering it, um, let me know. We'll move on. But okay. I was surprised to see some backlash to the term sober curious or the embrace of the term sober curious the idea of it even, because for some people that were in a 12-step program and had hit really low bottoms and had had, you know, really dangerous, life-threatening situations, they had some anger about the idea of people dabbling in sobriety mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. taking sobriety lightly when for them it was a life or death thing. I saw some heated discussions about it in the online community, sometimes for people who have to, who stay sober because 
they are invested in the idea of powerlessness and that the only path to sobriety is through powerlessness, then to be accepting of other pathways can be dangerous for them because it it threatens the system that got them where they're at. That was my take on it. Were you exposed to, or have you been hit with criticism of it? How does it feel? What's your perspective on it? And how do you deal with it? First of all, I don't mind you asking about this at all. I think it's a really important question and a really important point to make. I was petrified when I first started using the term in public or first started hosting those events in 2016. Not necessarily that I would receive backlash. I thought I might do, but I was more concerned that I might be endangering people's recovery. Because everything I knew to that point was that if you had an alcohol problem, this was life or death. And one drink could be what gets you killed, that one drink. But that wasn't my story. And I followed my intuition and trusted my intuition, which was that there were many, many people who had a drinking problem that didn't look like that and that they needed tools, conversations, support, language around what that looked like. So I pushed through my fear and did it anyway. And, um, It's been really interesting in the entire time span that I've been talking about this. I've had two instances of pushback. Both were at live events and both were at Wonderlust Yoga Festivals, actually, when I was giving talks a couple of years apart, actually, on the subject. And someone in the audience was like, you know, this is this is not really, you know, sober sober is being sober is serious business and this is potentially endangering people. Um and I just gave the same kind of answer that I just gave you, which is that um in no way, shape or form is the sober curious movement or thinking meant to detract from or replace or belittle or take away the need for those sober serious spaces. This is an addition and actually potentially a stepping stone for people to those spaces who might have felt that they didn't have the courage to go right there. So it's been interesting. I, and, and like I said, since, since the book's come out and since all the publicity's happened, I haven't received any backlash personally. I know that both Holly Whitaker and Annie Grace, who obviously very big figureheads in this movement also, did receive a lot of backlash and I wonder if that's because their their work sort of started coming into the public around a couple of years before me maybe they kind of paved the way with their work potentially mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but maybe there's a sense of it's not fair that I got this so bad and there are other people out there who can dip a toe in and it not be so high stakes. And that's just not fair. And that just really sucks. And I wonder if some of the anger comes from that. I don't know if that, that's just a kind of like total conjecture. So correct me if you think I'm wrong there, but it's not fair. It's absolutely not fair that some people suffer such devastatingly severe consequences as a result of their alcoholism. It's not fair. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that's right. And a big part of a 12-step program involves examining those things that you resent because in the long run, mm-hmm. the resentments that we have, whether they're to our parents or, <laughs> you know, a church or other people that get sober in a different way, those resentments are something that our subconscious can use as a toehold to really mm-hmm. undermine our wellness and in the long run can take us down. So. 
I'm guessing that someone who, yeah, someone working a a good program to use a 12 step vernacular, someone working a good program (laughs) would uh, pause when they felt that way and maybe work on it. Yes, I wonder how many 10 steps have been done around me and the Sober Curious movement. Um, <laughs> I, live, I live with a dedicated 12-stepper, so um, I'm, I'm very aware of the process and the work that goes into that. And it's an incredible process and it's an incredible practice for self-reflection and self-awareness and acceptance and really, really amazing spiritual deep, deep work when someone really engages with the work. So what do your conversations at home look like then about that? And how did that inform your perspective as well? So I'm talking about my husband. He won't mind me talking about this here. He got sober curious with me because he lives with me and I stopped drinking on date night and that was weird. And so he did too. (laughs) (laughs) And then, um, yeah, he, he found his way to the rooms and found exactly what he needed there. And it's really become a way of life for him. So he was a, a bit behind me, but then kind of like overtook me in terms of like the depth with it that he went into his sobriety. And now we don't drink and it's and it's just an, a complete non-issue. And we sort of look back on our drinking life and tell each other, wow, it's like we got two lives for the price of one. That's a pretty good deal. Um, that's sweet and and you know and and he'll he'll tease me about how I'm in denial sometimes and it's 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 fun we spar a lot over it you know he'll call me out on my resentments (laughs) and and also I mean it's just it's just it's interesting conversation for us you know um to talk about what comes up for us and the different things that we are different experiences of drinking and not drinking, you know, being sober and being a non-drinker. And in fact, if anything, I think him choosing or finding himself on that path, because when I, when I first got sober curious, my intention wasn't necessarily to be completely abstinent from alcohol. As the years have gone by and I steadily and consistently drank less and less doing some of the, well, doing lots of the sort of self-inquiry that's in the sober curious reset, I really came to a place where I complete, I knew 100% for myself that there was no need or use for alcohol in my life because largely because I'd found other quote unquote solutions for all the things I was using it for. And so the, the need or the desire for it just completely fell away. But I think actually living with somebody who is completely abstinent and working the steps has removed any last sort of connection back to that world. Like I, there is, there honestly isn't any situation now where I would consider having a drink or desire to have a drink or thinking about, think about having a drink. And I wonder, I think that's partly because I live with somebody who's so, so sober. <laughs> In my experience, my 12 step friends, the mindset it spills over into every aspect of their life in a really helpful way. So I'm guessing that the principles of the 12-step lifestyle then probably come into your conversations that you're having that have nothing to do with alcohol, but maybe have more to do with like a coworker or a family member who's getting under your skin or, you know, isn't it interesting how those principles apply to so much? Can you talk about that a little bit? I mean, I know (laughs) because I'm I'm curious about this dynamic of the, of the two philosophies, you know, (laughs) living in harmony. It's really romantic. (laughs) 
Well, it's made me realize how aligned that both both of these philosophies are ultimately about living in integrity and really being honest with yourself about your actions and the world that we live in. And yeah, just honesty and integrity. And so there's a whole that can be applied to anything. It's having the kind of framework of the 12th step process as a way that he communicates with me means we can have really deep conversations about family dysfunction, about politics, about all of these kind of touchy subjects, which are very non-reactive and non-judgmental. We've been together for over 22 years. It's our 18th wedding anniversary this summer. And I feel, and, and we've always got on well, and we've always been very honest and open with each other. And there's a whole other layer of intimacy that has been possible now as a result of both of us just being in this space of really kind of like honest self-reflection and self inquiry Mm. and I have undoubtedly been the recipient of his men's making process (laughs) I've just watched him become a much kinder more um generous and accepting human being first and foremost of himself which has been incredible to witness I'm so grateful that he found he's found what he has in the 12-step program you know the irony of you saying that is that our culture so associates drinking with romance and Mm you know, a bottle of champagne on your anniversary and having a drink, you know, in order to seduce someone, having a multiple drinks or whatever. And, mm-hmm. and to know that, you know, lasting, deep, romantic relationships actually thrive in an alcohol-free environment. And the mindset and sort of the communication style and rules around that 12-step communication pattern and mindset are helpful, really helpful. Even when we have been together for a long time, sometimes we need that even more because mm-hmm. if you partner up with your spouse at a young age, and I met my husband when I was 17 and now mm-hmm. I'm in my fifties, it's possible to bring some really old communication patterns forward with you. So you grow up in relation to everyone else in your world, but you're still kind of communicating like teenagers between yourselves or have some immature styles between yourselves. So mm-hmm. introducing a whole new set of rules or way to understand things in the same way, I'm sure is really helpful. Really helpful. And even when you've been with someone for so long, there might still be parts of yourself that you've not shown them. Mm-hmm. And you've got very, very comfortable with there being these microscopic parts, memories, resentments, like feelings attractions, aversions, that you just kind of never really needed to reveal. My husband and I, we used to do a lot of drinking together and it was so much fun. We had so much fun until it wasn't. It was only after us both quitting drinking that I realized there were still parts of me that he didn't really know, that I still hadn't felt quite like it was okay to show him completely parts that I still felt maybe slightly ashamed of or didn't even really feel like I needed to share with him, you know? And they all, they all, they're now all revealed. <laughs> and I think it's that, that kind of like those, those minuscule little pieces that we still keep hidden when we decide that it's okay to share them with somebody else is when real, like, lifelong intimacy can be seeded. So how did that go? Were you terrified? Did it just come out? 
terrified in some instances, terrified in some instances. And I'm not, you know, these are things that took me 20 years to reveal to him. So I'm not going to reveal them in the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I forgive you. (laughs) Terrified in some instances, which is where, when I knew when there's that feeling of just like, wow, am I going to say this? I knew that was when I had to really go for it. You know, um, that was where there was the barrier to total honesty. And if I wanted to really be with this human and really respect the honesty that he was showing me, then I owed it to him. And yeah, in each of those leaps, there's just come such huge relief in being accepted. So it's very, it's been really, really wonderful and extremely romantic (laughs) being on this path together, which is definitely, like you say, it's not what you would necessarily expect to hear. Yeah. I didn't, I, this wasn't on my list of things to talk about at all today. And I'm just <laughs> loving this conversation. <laughs> it's so interesting. And it just goes to show the far reaching effects that recovery has in our lives. I mean, we think we're just going to fix mm-hmm. one thing. Oh, I just drink too much. If I can just fix that, everything will be perfect. And mm-hmm. as it turns out, it's much richer than that. It's, it's much more complicated than that and much better than that. So much better. And it really, I mean, the whole the whole point about confronting your drinking and removing, like I said, this buffer that kind of exists between who we are and the life that we're living, it requires so much courage. But it is that classic sort of feel the fear and do it anyway, and you'll just be rewarded by so much more innate trust, innate courage, like so much more faith in yourself to be able to just kind of do the tough stuff. Because I've had similar conversations with my sibling, with my parents, um, with all the people I'm closest to. And it's been really incredibly rewarding and challenging. <laughs> Do you feel like you've deepened your relationship with yourself then too? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like I've really grown up. It's interesting you mentioned that. I mean, I think the majority of us probably start drinking in our teens, regardless of what the legal drinking age might be. We're probably exposed to alcohol first experiment when we're teenagers and I think there were definitely parts of me that hadn't matured beyond kind of age 16 17 I was actually early 20s that I really started drinking but yeah I feel like I've really grown up it's very interesting as well that this book and this movement has really flourished against the backdrop of such challenging times in out in the world which is encouraging to me because it shows that people are ready to show up for the tough stuff and know that actually drinking through it is not going to solve our problems kind of individually or or collectively for for me going through this process against this backdrop has been a real kind of it's really sped up that process of maturation and sort of a deeper understanding of myself and my place in the world what are you hearing from people about the way that the pandemic has affected their drinking and their their relationship with alcohol well, it seems to go two ways, and I'm sure you've experienced this too or heard this too. There are there are sort of two camps. On the one hand, we're hearing statistics of binge drinking are way up, particularly among women, and I think that the links between the COVID childcare crisis and women drinking more during the pandemic is probably quite clear-cut. And then on the other hand, there are people who are really taking this as an opportunity to look at themselves, look at their habits, and cut out what doesn't feel what no longer feels good for them particularly for people who've mainly used alcohol as a a social lubricant and to medicate social anxiety I was in that camp just the kind of reduced 
social interactions has kind of let people off the hook from a lot of that social drinking that they did. And they're realizing, oh, wow, actually, when I cut that out, I feel better about myself and my life and I have more energy and I'm sleeping better. And wow, that was actually having much more of an impact than I ever realized. But then for the people who use alcohol mainly to get through painful stuff, this has been a very, very challenging time. And alcohol, I think, has felt like the only escape from a situation where we all feel very trapped, you know? So, yeah, I'm really happy that all of these resources are available to people as we move through this really challenging period together. And I think that the message that it's okay to quit or it's okay to admit that you think you might have a problem or that it's okay to reach out, it's never been more important to to really broadcast that. So the people who are maybe finding themselves drinking a bottle or two of wine a night because there's nothing else to do and they're trapped indoors and they don't have anyone to talk to. I think it's more important than ever just to kind of let people know, hey, it's okay, you can ask for some help with this, you know? Was it a, a deliberate decision then, Ruby, to release the Sober Curious Reset now at this point during the pandemic? I mean, you can't go out and do book tours. Right. No. <laughs> From a sales perspective, um, you probably have sacrificed some numbers in order to release this now, but there's a real need for it. Did that play into the timing decision? Um, not necessarily, actually, although I think it is great timing for this book because it's completely self-directed, although I do recommend that you do it with a friend and certainly that you let other people know that you're doing the work. It wasn't timed for the pandemic. It was timed. Be- it was timed because hey, there's sober curious, there's lots of people who are sober curious. Let's actually give them a tool to work with. The first book kind of lays out the whole philosophy and there's a lot more about my own journey and what I uncovered through getting sober curious. And then this new book, it takes you through 100 diet days with a very specific sort of guided exercises each day to really apply it all to your own life. Um, So I think the timing for it is great. And yeah, it has been frustrating not to be able to be out there kind of talking to people about it and and doing the exercises with people Um, but again thanks to technology I've definitely been able to get on podcasts and talk about it I've done some online events and things and there is this sober curious Facebook group which is growing rapidly and where people are extremely supportive of each other and are inviting their friends to join the group and it's really nice to have that community growing as well. Is that something that people can find by searching it or do they need to have an invitation to join it? Yes. No, no. They, they can search for Sober Curious book on Facebook. Um, and the, the visual is of the Sober Curious Reset. Um, it's a private group though. So you will need to request to join. And I just, I keep it private for kind of obvious reasons. I just want it to be a safe space. That's really helpful for people to know that because they might be fearful to even search it because they're not sure what people will know. And it's helpful to know that when you join these groups, you really are in kind of a closed room Mm -hmm. and you have a lot of privacy around it. And and the support, even though it's on Facebook, is still really contained within the group, which is helpful. Mm -hmm. I have to tell you, the book is really beautiful. So when we booked the interview, the publishing company sent me just an an e-file with the uh, the text of the book. And I, so I was reading the material. And I'm like, oh, this is really good. This is really good material. Mm. And then the book arrived in the mail and I thought, oh my gosh, it is just so lovely. And it's a really cheerful layout. And it's just so interesting to me how a package comes together. 
good content is good content, but then just to have a really nice book that's actually a great tool. And I would see this as kind of a keepsake after it's completed as well, that people would want to keep and look back on and probably redo some of the exercises in it. And so it's just really lovely. I have to compliment you on that. I'm guessing you're pleased at how it turned out. I am very pleased. Yeah, I it was a new, it was a different publisher from the first Sober Curious book, but I think they did a really great job. It feels really meaningful in a way. It has a weight to it, and I love those all these blank pages where you can do all the journaling exercises and things. It has a cheerful tone, and I think that's one thing I've really wanted to bring through with all of this work is a sense of optimism. So I was really happy they put the yellow on the cover. It's a very optimistic color, but a sense of optimism and a sort of, for it to be, it's a cliche term, but to really feel like a judgment-free zone, you know? And that's lots of the feedback I've got for both books is that this is super non-judgmental. It really is, it's going to meet you where exactly where you're at. But yeah, thanks for that. I really do like the book. So, because otherwise it's available as an ebook and an audio book, and you could certainly do, you could have a separate journal and use either of the digital editions and do it that way. But I think have, there's something really nice about having a book that becomes, like you say, a bit of a keepsake where you can look back at what you've written. There's also, yeah, it's just, it's just nice to have something to hold. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's a nice gift book too, because it's not fix yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Here, right. here's my gift for you. You're screwed up. Do something about that. Um, but that it's, it's, yeah, it's positive and it's fun and it's introspective. Talk about how you developed mm-hmm. the exercises. So there's a hundred different, um, I'm calling them mm. exercises. I don't know if that's how you re- mm. refer to them, but there's a hundred days of activities or reflections. How did you develop those? Are those based on your own experiences or feedback from mm-hmm. other people? How did those come to be? Yeah. Well, I kind of decided that each day should have a question, you know, being sober curious by its nature means questioning. Mm. And so I just went through all of the questions that I had ever asked myself (laughs) and sort of flicked back through the original book and just kind of made a note of what were the really kind of like key points and teachings and how could they be framed as a question and as sort of an exercise. So yeah, I do think of them as exercises. Some of them are just sort of thought experiments where I'm asking you to step into that observer mind and maybe look at something differently in a way that you hadn't necessarily thought about it before. And, and and lots of them through, like I said, it was hosting events, which would range from up to 250 people coming to these events, lots of Q&A happening at those events. So just through those events and then through all of the conversations or all the questions I would get in my Instagram DMs and at events promoting the first book, I just kind of had a real good sense of what people were asking themselves when they were getting sober curious. So lots of it was based on feedback, intel, reflections that I was getting from people who were reading the first book. And lots of that intel went into this sober curious research. When I first got sober, I heard at that time, lots of other people were starting to do 30-day challenges or 100-day challenges. It was kind of a new thing back then. And I remember Mm -hmm. thinking, oh gosh, that's dangerous because, you know, they're just going to go back out when they're done. And my attitude has really been changed because over the years, I've heard so many guests on this show, hundreds of them literally, saying that they started with a 30 or 100 day challenge and just kept going. And that in their heart of hearts, what they really wanted was to get sober. But that starting with a, a smaller piece of time, it was easier to 
to start and kept them going. Mm -hmm. Uh, And by the time they got to the end of it, then they would just either keep extending another 30 days or another 30 days. And that gave them a chance to not have to say to someone, you know, I'm sober or I'm in recovery. It was like the thin edge of the wedge. It was a way to start it that was a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. Have you found that? Or do you do you find that there mm-hmm. are a number of people who do it and then tick it off as kind of a, you know, a bucket list challenge and go back to how they were before? Or do a lot of people seem to embrace a hundred day exercise as as the start of something permanent? I think, again, there are sort of two camps. There are definitely people who see a dry January as a bit of a detox and they'll white knuckle their way through it and they'll do it and they'll say, see, that proves I don't have a drinking problem. I managed to stop for a month <laughs> and then go back to their back to their old ways, <laughs> knowing they're going to take another point, point break at some point and that will be their detox and then they can just carry on. And And if that's working for you, then fine. Oftentimes the difference is coming to a reset, whether it's 30 days, 60 days, 100 days, whatever, and with intentionality, meaning I'm really going to use this period to get to the bottom of why I'm drinking, how I'm drinking, what it's, uh, what purpose this substance is serving in my life. Once you start with a clear head, looking at those deeper questions and using that period as a time to really get to the bottom of that, I think what you uncover in that process will really help to inform your drinking choices going forward and will really shift your drinking choices going forward. And to, to your point about, you know, it being an easier kind of entry point, mm-hmm. I used to describe it this way, you know, the thought of total as a, as a regular, I'm putting air quotes here, kind of social drinker, drinking three, four nights a week. Didn't think I really had a problem with it. It just wasn't feeling good. The thought of quitting complete like abstinence for life was like being taken up to the edge of the cliff and someone saying, just jump off, just jump off. And down the bottom is like Nirvana. It's, it's Nirvana down there. You just got to jump. <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> but this way is kind of, you know, getting tooled up, getting a map, getting a backpack, getting supplies, finding the kind of like rocky path down the mountain. And then at the bottom, guess what? It is Nirvana, but it's so much easier to contemplate. Like, our human human brain has no reference point for forever. So it's almost impossible to contemplate quitting forever. We don't know how long forever is. We have no way of knowing. Quitting for 30 days is a much easier, manageable chunk of time. And if you tool up to do that 30 days, then I think you're a lot less likely to even want to go back to drinking how you were because you will have discovered so much about the benefits of not drinking. And most importantly, the why am I drinking? What is this doing for me? Okay, when I have that information, I can proactively start looking for other things, behaviors, thoughts, practices, activities that do that thing for me. They're not going to look the same and they won't do it in exactly the same way. But I can start to replace alcohol with something else that does actually serve me. Mm-hmm. I really think that is part of the delight that I found when I quit drinking. It was an unexpected pleasure. I did find things that needed healing and needed tending that I hadn't been willing to acknowledge or that I had been numbing with alcohol. And and it felt so good to deal with it. And Mm -hmm. then I thought, okay, well, what else can I fix? What else isn't serving me? And it's hard to do that if you're drinking all the time. So giving someone a 
break from the alcohol so that they can experience the joy of, of healing parts of themselves is yes. clever. It's a clever yes. uh, trick, right? Come for the sobriety, <laughs> stay for the recovery. Um, exactly. That's a really good way of putting it. <laughs> I also thought as I looked through your book that it would be quite a useful tool for someone who is having trouble getting started. So I have a friend who I'm certain is probably listening because she's just such a great supporter of the bubble hour. And she has been in recovery for a long time, but racking up the days is hard. This is a good tool to keep yourself going through that too. It's presented as a newcomer's introduction to sobriety, but I think it would also be a really useful tool for someone who is, you know, pretty well versed and or has some time, but is having that chronic stumble situation. Ruby, in your experience, what do you think gets in the way of people's success that that want to be alcohol free but keep going back to it? And how do you suggest they get past that? Oh gosh, cravings, cravings. I had a really strong craving and it just took over and I was, my willpower failed me. Mm -hmm. That's it really. And this is why, and again, this is controversial. This is why I'm a fan of all of the alcohol-free versions of different drinks that are on the market now. An alcohol-free beer can really help someone get over a craving for a beer. Half an hour later, they no longer want the beer. They haven't had a drink and they move on. Again, it's controversial because for somebody who has a deeper dependency, that could pave the way to, well, next time I'll have an alcoholic beer then. And I understand that and I appreciate that these these products aren't for everybody, but they've been very helpful to me and I know that they're very helpful for a lot of people who are sober curious. But then it's like, what is the what does the what does the wanting want, as Russell Brand put it once, which I think was a really good um phrase, you know, there's a craving. And in many instances, with an, as, as addictive a substance as alcohol, it's a physical craving for alcohol. But what's underneath the craving? What don't you want to feel? What do you want to feel? What can you replace the alcohol with in that moment? An inability to be with feelings of discomfort is what prevents people. That discomfort will show up as a craving, but that discomfort likely has its roots in something else. So developing your capacity to be with uncomfortable feelings. The only way to do that is to be with them is really key, I think, to helping people get over the hump. There are physical practices that can help us with that. Yoga is sort of designed for that. And so many people find yoga and meditation to be extremely helpful in their recovery, whether it's a sober serious or a sober sober curious recovery journey. But being able to be with discomfort, I think, is the number one thing. Thank you so much for spending a whole hour with me here today. I have loved hearing your thoughts and getting to know you. Can you tell our listeners how they can find you and how they can get your book and hear your podcast and all of the good things that you offer? So I have a website, rubywarrington.com. Pretty much everything's on there. My my podcast is all listed there, but you can listen to it on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. My books, I hope, are available wherever you can buy books online. And I'm occasionally on Instagram. I'm curious about getting off social media. So I actually recently started a personal newsletter where I write about this and other subjects that I'm interested in too. And you can sign up for that at rubywarrington.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today. And listeners, I hope you have enjoyed our discussion today. Thank you for being here and for your ongoing support of the Bubble Hour. That's all for this week. Until next time, 
take good care. I own it, I did that, not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity, not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power, weakness head on. Just want to be free.